Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I was telling my kids about how my family used to go on really long car trips when I was young. Like, my mom and dad loved piling us up in the car and just driving to really cool places. And occasionally there was an excuse for it, right? Like, once they drove us from New Jersey all the way to Quebec City. Just so my dog could drink some holy water. Wait, just so your dog could drink the holy water? <laughs> yeah, as I'm saying this out loud, I realize it makes less and less sense. But our dog was ill at the time, and we'd adopted him as a pup from this Catholic family. And even though we aren't Catholic, my mom decided she wanted to honor his religious traditions. <laughs> so we drove all the way up to St. Anne de Bopre, which is this stunning basilica in Quebec City, where a lot of healing miracles tend to happen. And we let him lap up some holy water there. Oh, your mom is the best. What a great idea. But I do have to ask, did it work? And did your dog live? <laughs> yeah, well, we all fell in love with Quebec, so that part worked. Uh-huh. And uh, and he did live for a few more years, though I'm not sure whether that was St. Anne's doing or whether his medication was doing the heavy lifting. But, you know, it did make me curious about the miracles that have taken place there. And when I started reading online, it sent me down this massive Catholic rabbit hole of, like, saints and pilgrimages and... After a few hours, I can't tell you how many tabs I had open about, like, the Vatican's official cricket team and how they've received letters from, like, both Jefferson Davis and Abe Lincoln. Like, I realized we had to do an episode on, like, the Vatican and all the secrets hiding there. So that's what today's episode is all about. Why don't we dig in? Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hattigater. And today we're talking about the secrets of the Vatican. Now, this is a topic that Mango and one of our brilliant researchers, Nolan Brown, have been talking about for a few weeks. And so after all that research, Mango, I've got several questions for you. But why don't we start out with this one? Have you ever actually been to the Vatican? (laughs) That's a pretty easy one. I have actually, way back when I was in seventh grade. And I was completely fascinated on my tour there. But you know what's funny was that when I was researching today's episode, I decided to look up TripAdvisor just to see what other people thought and what their experiences were. And one of the things I loved reading was all these one-star reviews of the place. <laughs> so I just have to read a few to you. All right, go okay. for it. So this one's titled Vending Machines. <laughs> the vending machine worked very well. It's worrying when this is the first thing you start a review with. The Vatican is by far the most boring place I have visited. (laughs) One star. Ouch. (laughs) And here's another. Highly recommend you realize what you're getting into before booking a tour. It's a lot of broken English from guides and a lot of paintings and art. One star. What did these people expect? (laughs) And how did this become a hobby of ours where we like going to different places and just reading the one star reviews on on TripAdvisor? I remember we were looking at ones for... uh, I think it was Yellowstone, and one of them about Yellowstone was just a bigger Central Park, but with bears. (laughs) But we're obviously coming from a very controversial angle that there's plenty to see at the Vatican. But I do want to clarify for our listeners up front, I know there's a lot of history on Vatty leaks and sex scandals and whatnot, 
And of course, there's plenty of discussion around all of those things. But today's show is really just about the surprising things we didn't realize about Vatican City and the Vatican both in how it functions, but also what's hiding behind those walls. Yeah, we're not trying to knock religion or delve into controversy. We just want to dig into the fascinating history. All right, well, let's start with that then. Why why do you think it's such a fascinating place for us? Well, for me, part of it's that the church has played this outsized role in history. I mean, you think about the Crusades and the early explorers and people like Mendel and Copernicus. I mean, the Catholic Church is just this constant recurring character in our history books. Yeah. But at the same time, there's so much that's cloaked in mystery. And as an outsider, it's just completely unknowable when it comes to the rituals of the church. What do you mean by that? Well, I feel like you read these tiny tidbits and they seem totally impossible, but also maybe true. Like, I read this widely circulated story that when the Pope passes away, a physician will tap him on the forehead three times with a special silver hammer just to make sure he's actually dead. That does sound maybe made up. <laughs> right. And that's what I thought, too. It's like too good to be true. But also, I'm not a priest. I don't know. So I looked it up on Snopes and they can't tell whether it's true either. I mean, there actually is a tiny silver death hammer and it sits in waiting at the Vatican. And once a pope passes away, it actually does have this special use. Like first, a chamberlain will call out the deceased pope's name three times, which sounds a little like the forehead thing, right? And if the Pope doesn't respond, the hammer's used to break the seal on the Pope's ring. And only then is the room cordoned off. And that's when they actually start arranging for the funeral. Well, with all that detail, I mean, I guess it sounds like there's some truth there. Yeah, according to Snopes, there probably was a time when the hammer was used to, you know, double check that the Pope was dead. Back when people were accidentally buried alive. But, you know, it's a long time since then. Still, I, I think you can see what I mean, right? Like, there's so much old ceremony and tradition that isn't really public knowledge that makes it easy for someone like, you know, a writer like Dan Brown to write at the edge of these myths and make all these things feel plausible. Well, and there's so many things like that. I remember before we were even talking about this episode, reading some story about those Pope chairs with the holes in them. Did you read some about these? <laughs> yeah, the holy chairs. <laughs> all right. So for our listeners that don't know about these, these are these strange chairs with holes at the center of the seat. And there's this, I guess, kind of a dubious origin story that accompanies them. So the legend goes back to whether or not there was a female pope at one point. And supposedly there was this very astute pope named John who turned out to be a Joan. And the story goes that, you know, she was pregnant and giving birth during a parade. And then, of course, because of this, she was stoned to death when everybody realized she was a woman. And after that happened, the church made future popes sit in a chair with a hole in it. So, you know, so that a physician could reach through the bottom and verify the pope's manhood. How weird is this? It's so outrageous. Like, why would you need a chair for that? Oh, wait, wait. How else would you do a physical? <laughs> but you see this story everywhere. I saw one on Scientific American about Pope Benedict III, and they were doing a check on him. And apparently they all said, thanks be to God, after they did their check, you know, to verify that he had testicles. And you know, there's some speculation from historians that maybe the chair was used to ensure a pope hadn't been castrated, but it's it's honestly all very murky. Yeah, and it's it's all kind of like that silver hammer, right? Like these chairs actually do exist. Yeah, well, that you know, there's plenty of tradition and history that we don't know, but why don't we start with some of the things that we do? You know, after all your research, I think maybe you should give us a little bit of background on the Vatican. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely do that. Actually, let, let me just pull up my notes. So obviously the Vatican City is like the spiritual and governing center of the Roman Catholic Church. And originally the land was actually this marshy area. And then apparently it turned into this seedy district. But by Caligula's time in 37 AD, it had totally been gentrified. Like there were nice houses and gardens and whatnot. And today, like the area is pretty much built around St. Peter's tomb because that's the area where he was martyred. The Vatican spans, if you think about it, like about 100 acres or so, and it's considered a monarchy with about a 1,000 people living there. And the Pope is at the top of that, obviously, but something I had not have thought about before, but there's no vice Pope, right? Yeah, he's, he's kind of alone at the top. I mean, he delegates duties to various people and councils, but all that stuff you think about with the three branches of government, like legislative, judicial, executive, like all of that sits with him. Plus, he's got all the spiritual things to deal with. It's a ton of responsibility. And the funny thing is there's no turning the job down when you're nominated. Like, you can't say no to God. Well, that's true. But I have read several times about all these cardinals that don't want the job, that get really stressed out thinking about it just because of all of the international responsibility that, that goes with the job. Yeah, I mean, like, you got to deal with the church's legal stuff and the public relations. All that falls on your shoulders. And it can feel overwhelming. But, you know, what's funny is the room the new pope is escorted to after he's just been elected 
It actually has a nickname. It's called the Room of Tears. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a big job. And most popes need some time to compose themselves and like deal with emotion after they've been nominated. And here's something else about that room. Because no one knows who the next pope is going to be, the tailors actually have three papal robes waiting. There's a small, a medium, and large. (laughs) I never really thought about it, but I guess I just kind of assumed it was a one-fits-all kind of thing. But, you know, you're right. No one knows who's going to be elected. There's actually this great story about Pope Fabian, who wasn't even a candidate for the pope. But a dove landed on his shoulder during the election. (laughs) And so he got this unanimous vote to be pope. And, you know, I'll have some questions for you about elections in, in, in just a bit. Yeah, good, because I, I really want to talk about, like, how they send up black smoke and white smoke and, like, when they make a decision. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, well, let's back up for just a second and talk about how Vatican City became its own sovereign state. Obviously, we know what an impact the Roman Catholic Church had on history, but give me a quick sense of why there are these hundred acres carved out for it. Yeah, so those hundred acres are a little fuzzy. I mean, there's a McDonald's just outside the Vatican border that's actually on Vatican property, and it's kind of blurry. I actually hear you can order a Nutella burger and fries. Is this true? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of an Italy-specific thing. And uh, they also don't allow spaghetti there. That's only a Filipino thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, you're right about the Vatican size. I mean, for a while, and we're talking way back in the 1800s, the Pope ruled over a number of papal states in the region. But when Italy unified as a country in the late 1800s, it seized up all the Vatican's land. And then this really, really strange thing happened, right? And it was completely new to me. Apparently, Italy and the Vatican actually had a Cold War. Like, I always assumed Italy and the Vatican had this super cozy relationship. But for about 60 years, the Pope refused to acknowledge Italy as a country or even go into the balcony to bless people, especially if he thought, like, Italians were in the square. And even more than that, the Pope refused to leave the Vatican. Like, Pope Pius IX referred to himself as a prisoner of the grounds. But here's the craziest part of the story. The person who actually brokered the peace is Benito Mussolini. No way. Yeah, he delivered a pact that recognized the Vatican as sovereign. And in the deal, Italy bought back all the land it had taken for about $90 million, or about a billion dollars in today's money. Well, and obviously Italy and and the Vatican have a great relationship now. I think there's an arrangement where something like 8% of Italian income taxes can be diverted to the Catholic Church if a citizen chooses that. Mm -hmm. And any criminals who are sentenced by the Vatican court, they get moved to uh, an Italian prison. And if a person loses their Vatican citizenship, which ends when your job ends there, and if they don't have a country to go to, they become an Italian citizen by default. <laughs> Which has to be the weirdest way to get a citizenship. Well, you know what's interesting, though, that while that $1 billion amount we were talking about sounds huge, and you think about all the artwork and all the other things that are in the Vatican, all the treasure, the Vatican isn't exactly swimming in wealth. The annual operating budget is about $300 million. That comes in from tithes, but also museum tickets and printing services and all the souvenirs and those kinds of things. But Think about a place like Harvard. The university's annual budget is something like 10 times that at about $3.7 billion. It kind of makes the Vatican's proceeds, you know, feel almost shoestring. Yeah, and while the Vatican could easily put some of that fancy artwork up on Craigslist to get some, like, quick cash, the Vatican <laughs> has zero intention of selling anything. As Cardinal Caprio of the Budget Office once said, all the artwork belongs to humanity. Well, and the Vatican books reflect that. In their accounts, all these billions of dollars of artwork were assigned a value of one lira. <laughs> Which kind of reminds me of the Academy Awards and how actors actually have to sign a contract when they win an Oscar. Like, if they or their heirs want to sell the trophy, the most they can sell it for is a dollar. And they have to offer it to the Academy first. All right. But in 1999 numbers, a dollar was like 2,000 lira, Mm -hmm. which means if you wanted a fair trade, that'd be like trading a finger of an Oscar for the Sistine Chapels, the Pietas, all the Pope's (laughs) tiaras, plus all the other treasures of the Vatican. Sounds like a good deal. I'd forgotten about the Pope's tiaras, by the way. So why don't we talk about the Pope's fashion after a little break? Domingo, who do we have on the line today? So today I've got a super flimsy excuse for including some old friends on the show. Okay. <laughs> when we started doing a part-time genius, my friends from way back from elementary school, Tim and Brian Ganshorn wrote me and, and they were so kind about the show and I thought it'd be fun to have them on. And then when we were doing this show on the Vatican, I thought, perfect, because they were both altar boys. But <laughs> it turns out only Tim was an altar boy and I had messed up in my memories of it. But uh, welcome, Tim and Brian. Thanks. 
Thanks. It's an honor to be here. So, Tim, because I really don't know much about the church, I, I want to know, um, you know, is it an honor to be an altar boy? And how do you get selected for that position? Well, when I was a young child, my mother decided that I needed to be an altar boy. And so she <laughs> drove me to the church and dropped me off and didn't give me much choice. Um, I was, my older brother was also an altar boy. I have three brothers. I'm not sure why half of us were selected or voluntold to do this and half of us didn't have to do it. <laughs> I'll have to ask my mother that. <laughs> we'll get her on the line for the next quiz. All right. Well, what quiz are we playing today, Mango? We're going to play a game called Name That Pope. So we'll give you a pretty long clue and uh, you'll just have to give the name of the pope we're talking about. We're going to have them competing with each other, mm-hmm. right? So here's how we do this, guys. When we're competing, we have you chime in. But in order to make sure that we can understand your chimes, we're going to give you animal noises. So, Brian, you get to make the cow noise. You will be mooing in order to chime in. And, Tim, you will get to caca. Okay? You guys ready? All right. So when you know the answer, make your noise. Here we go. Question number one. He was pope before our current pope. Also a name for a style of eggs poached with hollandaise sauce. Woo. All right. That was a moo. Brian. Benedict. Benedict. Okay. Here we go. Question number two. This pope was only pope for 33 days in 1978. His name is the same. Wow. <laughs> Brian's the all-star here. Well, let, let me finish the question and I'll let you answer. His name is the same as two beetles strung together. Who do we have, Brian? John Paul. Okay. Nice. (laughs) All right. Question number three. This Pope and saint from 400 AD shares his name with a word you might plea if you didn't do the crime. Caca. All (laughs) right. I believe I heard a caca. Tim, who was it? Innocent. Okay. Two to one. Here we go. Number four. This Pope was an academic who reintroduced Europe to the abacus. He shares his name with a black and white Looney Tunes cat and an actor named Stallone. <laughs> oh, to tie it up, let's hear it, Tim. Sylvester. Yes. Yeah. Sylvester II, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. That's okay. right. I'm acting like I knew that. It was on the sheet here. <laughs> I believe that would be Sylvester II. <laughs> you knew it because yeah. of the abacus fact. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, tied up. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is the last one for the big win. Number five. This pope, known as the warrior pope, shares a name with Caesar, a basketball player named Irving, and an orange drink stand at the mall. Mm. Oh, just oh. barely, Brian, for the win. Let's hear it. Julius. That's right. Yes. And the warrior pope was Julius II, who also commissioned the Sistine Chapel. Wow. Okay. So so how have our contestants done today, Mango? Uh, it was obviously very close, but Brian edged out Tim. And uh, so first place, as always, gets a note to your mom or boss singing your praises. And because we don't want Tim's mailbox feeling lonely, we're going to send him a pea plant just like uh, Gregor Mendel used to grow. Wow, what a great prize. Sometimes (laughs) sometimes it almost seems better to be runner-up on these quizzes. Definitely. Well, guys, congratulations, and thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Thank Thank you you so much. Congratulations, (laughs) Brian. (laughs) Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Now, Mango, I know we both wanted to talk the Pope's fashion, and we've also promised to talk elections. I know, we've promised so much stuff. Plus, uh, I don't think we've given enough details yet to make those one-star reviewers happy. Probably not. <laughs> well, I was going to suggest a super quick rundown of the government. Again, you, you guys have done all this research on this, so here's what I want to do. I'll give you a department, and you tell me a fact that you guys have pulled up. Does yeah. that sound good? Yeah, and I can use my notes, right? All right, yes. Yeah, you're allowed to. But you have to close your eyes. All right. <laughs> Okay, uh, the fire department. So this is easy. Like, I love that their fire trucks kind of look like short buses. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) All right, what about the justice system? There's only one judge. And that must be God. (laughs) No, like an actual judge, but he has a lot of work. Why have I never heard about a judge? That's that's so interesting. Okay, how about about treasury? Well, there's a coin and stamp department, but unlike the Pope, they're not infallible. In 2013, they issued a coin that mistakenly spelled Jesus as Lesus, <laughs> which instantly boosted the coin's value. <laughs> and luckily, they only sold four before they discovered the God, mistake. I bet those things are worth so much <laughs> if they've only sold four of them. Okay, you must have read about this because I just thought it was interesting to think about the space program. Yeah, so you think with their history with early astronomers that the church wasn't interested in telescopes, but they've actually invested in them since the 1500s. And Even today, they have this advanced Vatican telescope at Mount Graham in Arizona, which was built in the 1990s. Like, it's really an area of interest. So the Vatican has a telescope in Arizona. Yeah, because they're interested in the heavens. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) All right. What about uh, the military? Yeah, so uh, this is easy, too. Well, they've been using a small corps of the Swiss Guard uh, since the 1400s, when the Swiss were considered the best mercenaries in the world. And uh, and they don't actually do a lot of fighting. Like, obviously, they're they're just there for ceremonial purposes. They wear this, like, really flamboyant garb. And they do wear plain clothes when they've got duty to protect the pontiff. But it's highly selective. Like, they're only 150, and you've got to be over 5'8", and Catholic, and male, and unmarried. There hmm. are lots of requirements. Yeah, yeah. All right, how about um, athletics? Uh, the Vatican actually has a soccer team and a cricket team. And the cricket team is really funny because they've uh, they've only played a few matches, but they did beat a traveling Dutch team called the Fellowship of Fairly Odd Places. The Fellowship of Fairly Odd Places? That doesn't sound like it would be a good cricket team. Is this is this really a thing? I know. I want the jersey, but that's actually the name. They play like old school cricket in places where cricket isn't like traditionally played. So like Iceland or the Vatican, Andorra, but the Vatican actually trounced them. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. How about transportation? Okay, so I love this one. There's a train that comes through, and there's only one station. Like, it just comes in, and then it backs out, (laughs) and it's mostly for freight. I mean, sometimes a dignitary will get on it. But, you know, if if you're talking about, like, the Pope's transportation, he's got this fleet of cars, like, amazing old fancy cars. But because Francis doesn't love fancy things, like, he mostly uses his Ford Focus, and that's his Pope mobile. (laughs) And sometimes he pleads with guards to let him take the city bus. He actually kind of sounds like the teenager who's been embarrassed about being driven around by his parents. But uh, (laughs) all right. So what about the uh, Department of Exorcisms was something I saw. 
Oh, actually, I, I've got one more fact about transport that I want to say. Okay. So this is top secret and off limits, but there's one hollow wall that could be used to help the Pope flee in case the city's ever sacked. And it's been used historically, and it runs from the papal apartments to a castle and possibly to other places. Oh, I thought maybe you were just trying to get around and get the uh, Department of Exorcisms <laughs> here while looking for a fact, but that's actually really interesting. Okay, but you still have to do exorcisms. Yeah, so you actually hear less about exorcisms now, but Benedict was obsessed with them. And the Vatican's chief exorcist, this guy Father Gabriel Amorth, he claimed to have performed 20,000 exorcisms between 2000 and 2010. Also, you'll never guess his favorite movie. What's that? The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I think I could have guessed that once you said that. All right, I think I've got one more. How about banking? So this one we've known for a long time, and it's like my favorite fact. The Vatican has the world's only ATM that operates in Latin. That is pretty awesome. <laughs> All right, so there's certainly a lot for the Pope to think about, but there's one more thing on the Pope's mind, and that's fashion. So before Francis tried to get out of wearing fancy duds and going casual, Pope fashion was actually kind of a thing. Yeah, it really was. And Benedict was kind of a clothes horse. I mean, John Paul II was known for wearing Doc Martens and brown ones. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing that he and the Dalai Lama actually traded tips on footwear and both wore Doc Martens for their comfort. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like, I think of Doc Martens as such a punk brand and nothing to do with religion. But Benedict, he wouldn't be caught dead in those. Popes in the olden days, they used to wear red, but he brought the style back of wearing uh, red slippers and also the cape with an ermine fur. In fact, he was so fashionable that Donatello Versace actually designed a line using him as inspiration. Well, and I know the church was sensitive about Benedict being seen as, as too fancy. <laughs> yeah. When a reporter commented on his red Gucci slippers, the Vatican responded by saying that Benedict isn't concerned with labels. And here's their statement. He said, uh, he couldn't spot a Gucci from a smoochie. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not sure I could either. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that fashionable. <laughs> Any other innovations? I know Pope John Paul II wore rainbow vestments once. Yeah, which was a little disastrous because this artist convinced him that the rainbow represented God's promise to Noah, that there'd be all this peace after the rainstorm. But when the artist later suggested that maybe it was a gesture of goodwill to the LGBT community, the Vatican responded that no one has a copyright on rainbows. And what about those ceremonial tiaras? They're, they're so ornate. Yeah, well, the only person I could find who was truly envious of the tiaras was Napoleon. <laughs> like, apparently the crown wears about seven pounds, but when he designed one and uh, gifted it to a pope, and he had the thought in the back of his mind that one day he might, like, take that power, he constructed a 10-pound tiara. Oh, wow. I know, which is so Napoleon, That's right? like a bowling ball on your head. <laughs> it's crazy. But that crown's actually also in the rotation, and they're often worn during important events like, you know, during the papal coronation. All right. Well, that brings us back to the election of the Pope, as we promised we would get to. I do know there's a council and they deliberate forever and they decide, I think, under the Sistine Chapel. But tell us a little bit about the process. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of amazing. First off, even if you bought tickets to the Sistine Chapel, like to go on a tour, everything closes down for the election. So you're out of luck. But that's where the Council of Cardinals meets. They do a morning mass and they take an oath of secrecy. And then they vote with paper ballots and they deliberate and it's all super quiet. Well, and that's for good reason, because I, I do remember reading that kings used to have the right to veto the decision of who became pope. Mm -hmm. And so they they try to influence these elections. And so the secrecy is really to protect, you know, the institution. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, you can actually be excommunicated if you leak any details. It's a little like being on jury duty, like you can't tweet or read the paper or make any phone calls. And to prevent leaks... The Vatican actually brings in porta potties. I mean, they're no pun intended. <laughs> I mean, they're easy to access, like bathrooms one floor down, but uh, no one's allowed to leave. Wow, and it can take days to do this, right? Yeah, which is why they send up those uh, smoke signals. That's to communicate to the public. When the signal is white, they're just burning ballots, and when it's black, they used to add straw, but now they add chemicals. Hmm. I also read that there's a second furnace now, too, and I didn't really understand that. But I, I guess sometimes the smoke would come out gray and people would be all confused, start asking questions. <laughs> so they added a second furnace to make sure the smoke comes out the right color now. Yeah, so this is the weirdest thing to me. And that's that at the end of this massive process, the Pope isn't even really declared Pope. Like his official title is, uh, I'm going to read this, Bishop of Rome, Vicar of Jesus Christ, successor of the Prince of the Apostles, Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Primate of Italy, Archbishop, and Metropolitan of the Roman Province, Sovereign of the State of the Vatican City, Servant and, sorry, Servant of the Servants of God. Are you done? Yeah. 
he's got eight titles and none of them are the Pope. <laughs> and apparently that comes from people calling him like the Holy Father or Sancta Papa. Oh, wow. Also, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember being really tickled when I saw this March Madness style bracket for popes. Like this was back when Benedict was being elected. And uh, I had no idea that betting on the Pope was a thing. Like it's been a thing since the 1600s. Apparently, the Italian market just goes crazy for it. Yeah, the Irish sites are all over it, too. I guess not not surprisingly. If you put your money on Francis, you would have made 25 to 1. <laughs> yeah, which is a lot of money. But, you know, all this talk of the Pope, and we still haven't gotten into some of the crazy things hiding in the Vatican archives. All right, well, why don't we break for a quiz, and then we'll dive right into those juicy stories. Our guest today is a best-selling author and journalist. We got to know her pretty well in our years at Mental Floss. And because we're talking about secrets of the Vatican today, we wanted to have her on just because one of her many brilliant books is titled, If Nuns Ruled the World, Ten Sisters on a Mission. Joe Piazza, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So, Joe, uh, I know you started out as a gossip columnist, and I remember you telling me some incredible stories of, like, faking injuries to get into hospitals to chase down stories. And... I want to know if you could share like a funny story or the lens you've gone to to get a story. I did indeed. So I was a gossip columnist for the New York Daily News back in the days when people still read newspapers. <laughs> so it was a really long time ago. And I was down in Florida covering the MTV Video Music Awards. And it was that the year that Should Knight, the music producer, got shot at one of these parties. And I decided that I was going to crack this story wide open, that I was I was going to discover who shot Suge Knight. So I busted into the emergency room by faking appendicitis. And <laughs> oh I, I made it all the way I made it all the way in and I I was this young, early twenty something reporter, um, trying to make a name for myself. And busted into the emergency room doubled over in in faux pain and got so far as that they inserted an IV, and it turns out my big scoop was that you know, Suge Knight shot himself, that the <laughs> safety wasn't on the gun. Um, there wasn't some big East Coast, West Coast rap war thing going on. It was it was just some some idiot guy and some idiot girl who's been stuck in the ER with an IV in her arm and a bunch of doctors asking her about her stomach pain. Um but it was great. I, we did get that story. And uh, <laughs> my, my, editors, my editors never sent me to a video music awards ever again, <laughs> which I think was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> so how did you get out of this situation? You're, you're there with the IV in your arm. Like what, what happens next? I ripped it. I, I ripped it out myself, and I snuck out of the hospital. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that I think at that point I told myself that I was in a romantic comedy, mm -hmm. um, like, and I was like in a movie and had had this scripted, and so I was I was like, all right, I've got this. Ripped <laughs> the IV out and just and just snuck out with a hospital bracelet on, you know, and those things are hard to get off. I think I had that thing on for like the next two days. It was kind of this badge of honor, but it was also pre-smartphones and pre-social media. So there was really, like, otherwise, if this happened now, people would be tweeting from that emergency room. That's what they do when they see a celebrity in there. Um, but no one, I still get to tell this story, like, word of mouth. I have no pictures. I, I, I would have video if this happened now. Right. So I kind of cherish the story because it's something that only I can tell. I have no evidence. I have no proof. I could be making it up right now. <laughs> Well, we are going to get to the romantic comedy that is your life in a bit, but I wanted to ask, what made you go from being this uh, incredible journalist to like studying and writing about nuns? Well, I was burnt out. I was burnt. I blame Britney Spears, actually. Um, <laughs> and I, tell, I, I tried to explain this to the nuns several times, and they're like, Britney, what? Britney? <laughs> and I'm like, let me show you this video of her as a Catholic schoolgirl. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was during Britney Spears' big breakdown and I was covering that the one where she shaved her head and started attacking reporters with an umbrella and I was covering that and I was covering the 2008 election and the Elliot Spitzer scandal all at the same time and I was burning out on these terrible people I was just exhausted by them and 
so the Daily News would pay for me to go back to school. And I'm like, well, what's, what's the antidote to Britney Spears? I'm like, oh, it's religious studies. Mm-hmm. So I had the newspaper pay for me to get this master's in religious studies. And through that, I started interviewing nuns for my final thesis. And I like to say that one nun leads to another nun, it's like a gateway drug. <laughs> and um, I just, I, I fell into this rabbit hole of the world of nuns and was hooked right away because their stories just hadn't been told. I mean, the Vatican really kind of covers up everything that the nuns do, all of their good works. They're, it's, it's funny, they're almost ashamed of all of the good things that the nuns are doing. And I spent about two years with, with these Catholic nuns. I interviewed hundreds of them, but the stories uh, that are in the book, If Nuns Ruled the World, there's about 10 of them. And they're just, they're all these badass, cool feminist women who changed their little corner of the world or their big corner of the world in some cases for, for good, just because they wanted to do, to make the world a better place. Well, what's, uh, what's one, one of your favorite stories uh, from the book, Joe? Um, I think my favorite story is about the iron nun. This one blows people away when I, when I talk to them about it. Um, Sister Madonna Booter started running when she was was in her 40s and she's now in her late 80s and she's done more than 47 iron man races oh wow and <laughs> they call her the iron nun she's been since the book came out she's actually been in a nike commercial and <laughs> she's written she's written her own her own book and she's she's just this feisty little octogenarian who happens to run iron men and she's absolutely incredible. People people fall madly in love with her on the race course because when people start to lag behind, she actually slows down. She cares less about her time than about helping everyone else on the race course. She slows down and, and sings with them and, and prays with them sometimes to try to help them get through the race, which is the opposite of everyone else who's doing an Ironman. <laughs> like, That's pretty it's incredible. It's probably like a subset of the most self-obsessed people in, in, the, in the athletic world. And... Yeah, she's great. She's the one that got me running. I was, I, I used to, you know, smoke like a pack of cigarettes a day and she got me into running half marathons. So yeah, she, she's one of the, one of the most inspiring sisters that's in the book. Now you've, you've just had a baby, but you've also recently written a book with your husband called How to Be Married. So what, what made you take on this project? I did. I did. Um, mostly because I had how, no idea how to be married. Uh, <laughs> and my way of figuring, my way of figuring out the world is pretty much just to report on it and, you know, then report back. So my poor husband is like, you really, you have no idea what you're doing. And I'm like, no, no clue. <laughs> so I was a travel editor at the time for Yahoo. Uh, God, God bless them. And, uh, they were sending me all over the world. And, figured, all right, what if I could crowdsource marriage advice from hundreds of people as as I'm going to these different countries? And I was going to France and Kenya, Tanzania, India, Israel, and I did. Like I got Yahoo pretty much to foot the bill for me traveling all over and asking for marriage advice. And it ended up being really interesting. It came out in April, and since then, I get emails from, from women all of the time who are like, Thank you, because everyone gives you advice about the wedding, about this one day where you have these tiny past appetizers and a band who looks like Mumford and Sons and people are sitting on hay bales and you spend a lot of money, but no one talks about the next 50 years, about the actual marriage. And this book talks about what happens with the actual marriage. So this was us figuring out how to be married on the fly. And it's going pretty well because we made a baby about four weeks ago. So <laughs> doing okay. Congratulations. I love that we pulled you out of that to take a quiz with us. That's right. That's right. So speaking of quizzes, uh, what, what quiz do we have for Joe today, Mango? We're going to play a game called Were They Celibate? Mm-hmm. All right. So here we go. Uh, I will I'm read really you. I'm really hoping Kanye West is involved. <laughs> I will read you a name. And you have to tell us whether the person was, in fact, celibate. Here we go. All right. Number one, Isaac Newton, the physicist and inventor of the cat flap. Isaac Newton, celibate or not? I kind of want to say celibate. You're right. Well, while he was interested in the laws of motion, none of them had to do with the ocean. That's right. All right. One for one. (laughs) Oh, poor Isaac. Excellent. Number two, Florence Nightingale. See, I feel like... Florence Nightingale really could have could have gotten a lot of tail out there. 
but I'm going to say that she, you know, not celibate. I'm going not celibate. That would have been what I would have guessed as well. What's the answer, Mango? She's celibate. Um, she, wow. Yeah. I mean, all these patients fell in love with her and she had countless uh, marriage proposals, but, but she decided to stay true to yeah. herself, I guess. And she lived into pretty old age, right? Yeah, to 90. Wow. Okay. All right. Here we go. One out of two. Number three. Uh, Tesla, Nikola Tesla, inventor and the Thomas Edison rival. I'm going to say celibate. <laughs> That's right. Correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, all right. Maybe because of, of the heartbreak over the pigeon. We have all heard the pigeon story, right? Where yeah, yeah. he fell in love with a pigeon. So, all yeah, right. Well, you know, that, that's the kind of thing you don't get over. <laughs> <laughs> that's very, very true. Okay. Number four, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Laura Ingalls Wilder was not celibate. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> okay, the last one. Attila the Hun. Celibate. You kind of want that to be the answer, <laughs> but, but unfortunately it's not You do want celibate. that to be the answer. I know. Wishful thinking, but he was not celibate. He had, Wishful uh, thinking. He had 12 wives. All right, not to- <laughs> 12 wives. Wow. All right, so how has Joe done today, Mango? So Joe went uh, an excellent three for five, and uh, which entitles her to the big prize which is our total admiration. All right. Congratulations, which Joe. Is not, which is not a box of condoms. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, uh, but thank you so much for being here, Joe. If, if you're listening, go out and get How to Be Married or her other book, Fitness Junkie, which is on shelves now. Thanks for having me, guys. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously, it's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. So, Mango, at the top of the show, we talked about the Vatican's one-star reviews on TripAdvisor. <laughs> and you were telling me how much awesomeness is at the Vatican. So why don't we prove it with some of our favorite things hiding behind the Vatican doors? Well, they're the obvious things, right? Like the letter Henry VIII sent with his request for an annulment. 
which obviously got rejected, and the Pope's letter to excommunicate Martin Luther. There's awesome historical stuff like that all stored there. But like I mentioned at the top, I had no idea what other sort of records were on file. Like, there's a note Michelangelo sent to the Pope letting him know that the Vatican was three months behind on paying their guards. And if they didn't pony up fast enough, there was all this talk of, like, the guards walking out on their job. Or there's this letter from the Ojibwe tribe in Ontario, and it's written on bark, and it comes from, like, 1887, just thanking the Pope for his help. But the details are really sweet. Like, they address the Pope as the great master of prayer, he who holds the place of Jesus. And while it was said in May, the date actually says where there is much grass in the month of the flowers. Like, I kind of love that. <laughs> that is pretty great. And there are also things like the, the letters from Lincoln and Jefferson Davis that you mentioned before during the Civil War, and they were each trying to get the Pope's support. But what's so strange about that is that neither of them was Catholic. Yeah, the Pope's note back, acknowledging Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy, it was touted as this big win. Like, the South treated it as, like, this official documentation that it was its own nation. And... I guess this is kind of obvious, but I didn't even think about the paper trail. Like, there are all sorts of documents about the personal affairs of cardinals, both good and bad, from the 1920s on, and hundreds of years of annulment papers. I mean, that's a ton of records to keep if you think about this. And there's something like 52 miles of shelves there. So browsing is definitely prohibited. But the so-called secret archives where all this stuff is housed, it, it actually is open to scholars. Yeah, one funny thing about the secret archives is that it's actually this mistranslation and though there's probably some fun stuff buried there, it actually translates more as the Pope's personal archives. Okay, but I don't think just a bunch of historical records are going to impress our trip advisor friends. So we might need some more off-limits type things. <laughs> what, what else you got for us? It's funny because I had all these like cute things lined up. Like Renaissance painters used to get bored with their uh, motifs that they had to paint. So like I know there's one who had to paint all these lions, and he did this one lion facing the other way, sort of like playful and. So there's this whole Where's Waldo motif going on. So there's an erotic fresco that you need to hear about. All right. I think this might be the one. <laughs> this might be what we're looking for. So, you know, there's all this talk about the Vatican having these giant stacks of, like, perverse art. And and uh, most of that's completely bunk. Right? Really? It's all hogwash. But this one's actually true. So in 1516, the painter Raphael was commissioned to decorate a cardinal's bathroom. And the cardinal wanted this really, like, lusty sex scene filled with pagan creatures. And Raphael got really into it. It's like totally in a classical style, but he goes crazy. It's supposedly done like a graphic novel and they're like naked nymphs and satyrs and like outrageous sex scenes. There's a goddess looking in a mirror while she's wrapped in a guy's legs. It's it's really nuts. But over the years, there's been so much outrage about it that it's been whitewashed and the space has been turned into a kitchen and then I think a meeting room. But there's still portions that peek out. And according to one visitor who saw it, there's a drawing of Pan, who apparently was, well, uh, he has this enormous member, and he's also excited. But then someone whited out his member, so now it looks even more, like, comically big, because you can't see how large it was underneath. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that may do the trick here. I think that probably takes it from a one star to maybe a one and a half star <laughs> for some of these people. But before we sign off, what do you say we have a little fact off? All right, here's one about the Sistine Chapel. The Michelangelo never wanted to paint it. Apparently, it was just painted as a giant sky with stars before, and, and the gig didn't appeal to him. He only saw himself as a sculptor. In fact, in his letter to friends, he complained that he never should have taken on the assignment, saying, I'm not in the right place. I'm not a painter. <laughs> but he is a painter. <laughs> yeah, he is a painter. <laughs> so the reporter who broke the news about Benedict stepping down from being Pope actually got the scoop because she's the only person in the room who understood his announcement. And that's because he made it in Latin. <laughs> so. All right. Well, the Vatican has a strong stance against gluten-free Eucharist. <laughs> They'll allow it, I mean, for people with serious gluten problems, but they do not like it. Also, adding honey or flavoring to the bread is severely frowned upon. <laughs> so according to the definitive book of body language, in 1985, five University of Texas college students were arrested at the Vatican for flashing the hook'em horn sign. <laughs> Apparently, it's a sign for cuckolding someone in Italy. Oh, that's a bad idea. <laughs> All right, well, the Vatican has announced its position on baptizing aliens. Did you know this? <laughs> it's good to have a stance on this, just to be clear. They'll happily convert extraterrestrials if they're interested in becoming Catholic. 
I love that. And I want to sit in on those confessions. Yeah, but, me too. <laughs> but before we go, I wanted to give a special shout out to Dolan Brown for pulling together a ton of research for this episode. And for all of you out there in part-time genius land, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.